Well, hey, my peeps, what is going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 258. And today is not like a normal podcast, right? Today is for all you like Theo geeks that are out there that maybe you kind of like thinking about theology, talking theology, kicking it around with your friends, posting stuff on social media, whatever it is. That's kind of today. So we're breaking off of the traditional path of how this incorporates being an everyday missionary, though I bet by the end I figure out a way to tie it back in. Um, but I thought it'd be fun to expose you to something I'm a big fan of that I think not everybody's a fan of uh, in the evangelical kind of theosphere, uh, but I think it's a really important thing. And it's this idea of never quite settling on anything, but always wanting to re-explore everything. Now, again, for some people that is very, very maybe unwelcome or unnerving because they go, no, man, we want to make sure that we just anchor down what we believe we believe. We double down on what we believe. We tighten down the screws. We caulk it with sealant and we call it done, right? So you don't come back around to the most fundamental things that we believe as evangelicals. And yet I'm not a big fan of that. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about like, super crazy explorations into stuff where you're like, okay, that's not even Christian anymore. That's not what I'm advocating for here. But um, I, I was thinking about how often I have this aversion to uh, systematic theology within our kind of conservative Protestant evangelical space. I have an aversion to it. And, and there's a lot of reasons I have an aversion to it. But let me give you a, a sense of perspective where I'm coming from in all of this and then why I'm getting into the topic I am today and why it's important to me, all right? And, and why I think it actually helps me to be a better everyday missionary by the end of this because I really do think I can tie it back in somehow. So uh, here's kind of the thing I've been thinking about. Um, the Bible that has been handed down to us for thousands of years, right? So starts in the BC era, uh, and it starts in an oral tradition of, you know, persons handing down stories. Eventually, those stories are kind of codified onto tablet or text. Uh, they're then kind of put together as this, you know, compilation of works, and that makes up the Old Testament. Then eventually we get into the New Testament era and all these different individuals, they're writing their pieces of literature. They're sending it about. Some things are being seen as universal for all the churches. Other things are saying, no, that's not for all of us. And so things don't always make it into the canon. Some things are canonized. Some things are not canonized. Like there's this whole unfolding process that takes well over a thousand years, right, to hand us uh, the Bible that we have today. And then in that, there was all sorts of tradition and all sorts of background and all sorts of uh, kind of social, political, moral backgrounds to all of these different things. And so from that, we're given a Bible that if you are handed that Bible with zero guidance, right, you're just given that book and you don't have any outside resources, you don't have any like like kind of intellectual Sherpas to take you on the journey up the Mount of Mount Biblicism or whatever else, like all of it is going to be then really kind of confusing and it's going to be messy and you're going to see things in there that are troubling and other things that are beautiful and some things that are incredibly inspiring and other things that are just deeply discouraging and you're going to see profound wisdom and then you're going to 
see the very people that wrote the wisdom be completely unwise and dumb, right? Like there's going to be this whole crazy mess in there and you're going to then get into the New Testament where you think it gets cleaner, but you're going to see Jesus advocating for things that seem to run contrary to sometimes the things that Paul says, not that they really do, but on the surface of it, it might look like that. Like, like Jesus talks a lot about, hey, you're going to be judged for your good and your bad, where Paul's like, no, you're saved by grace. You're, you're not going to be judged by your good and your bad. And, and it just seems all kind of like, what do I do with this whole thing? And what it does for me is it reminds me that more than a message to be shared, the Bible kind of stands as a problem to be solved. And and I want to be clear about this. I don't mean that it's actually a problem. What I'm saying is it's like a puzzle. It's like, uh, it's like, you know, some kind of, of, um, multifaceted uh, item where, you know, you're constantly kind of turning it in your hands. And every time you turn it, you see a different thing. You're looking at a different angle, a different side, a different point of view within it. And you're trying to figure out how does this all fit together? What is it revealing about God? What does it reveal about us? What does it reveal about life? What does it reveal about God's plan for the world and the ultimate culmination of all things. And so in that sense, because the Bible, as it stands in its rawest form, right, when you're just holding the 66 books with no other resources, um, it's complex and complicated and layered and hard to fully navigate. And in that kind of um, iteration, uh, I think what it drives us to is humility, curiosity, openness, and constant reinvestigation. Like we're constantly going to it and we're going to it saying, Holy Spirit, how am I supposed to understand this? How am I supposed to interact with this? How am I supposed to apply this? How am I supposed to process this out and and kind of come up with a working understanding of my relationship to God and my relationship to the world and then my calling as an everyday missionary? Like all of that is kind of in the discipline of just approaching the raw word as a raw person. And that exercise, I think, gets lost the more we start to build up all of our doctrinal substructures, right? And and we kind of start to put up the framework and the roof and the siding and everything else of our systematic theology. It's like the more we do that, we get further and further from the wonderment, the bewilderment, and the kind of unassuming beauty or unsuspecting beauty that's found in the rawness of the scripture itself, right? Like we start to answer all the questions. We start to strip this very complicated book apart into its individual little constituent pieces. And then we kind of recompile it in a way that makes sense to our 20th, 21st century rational minds. Or maybe we say even it happened starting back with the Reformation and, and, you know, like 1531 or whatever else where we're like, okay, we're going to start systematizing this complexity and we're going to build a system around what we're trying to work through. And that's going to become the answer to everything. It's going to be like the guarded or the the, the wall that shapes the garden space. And it's going to be this, again, a walled in garden of our belief system. And that's just the place we're going to dwell. And it's like the more we dwell there, the more we just kind of have all the right answers. We go, there's one way to approach the Bible. There's one answer to everything. And our answer is the answer. And to swerve from our answer is the answer is somehow then a heresy. And so you don't ever feel that you can ask questions, can push back, can re-explore because no, this has already been solved for you. Just do what's been solved, believe what's been solved, and that's all there is to it. That's kind of why for me then, when I think about the order in which 
I like to kind of approach the idea of uh, truth as I go, truth actually starts with a person, which is Jesus, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He came full of grace and truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So when we talk about truth, I first go, the pinnacle truth is Jesus, right? That's the pinnacle truth. Kind of then from that pinnacle truth, the promises of God, the covenants of God made to Israel, made to us, that's kind of like the next layer. Those are the enduring things like God promised X and God promised Y. And so that's truth. And then you're kind of getting into the next thing, which is the raw scriptures. That's the truth. And then from there, you might say, then our particular little corner of the world theologically, that's another layer of sub truth, which is kind of your systematic theology and everything else. But but in my world, then I go, hey, I want to make sure that I'm I'm always coming back to those earlier things with curiosity, with question, as problems to be solved, as opposed to a settled thing, and I just proclaim the settled thing. Um, Because, again, what I find so often in the spaces of um, teachers or preachers that come across like they've they've settled it, like this here is the exhaustive truth. So Arminianism is the exhaustive truth. Calvinism is the exhaustive truth. Uh, Protestant evangelicalism is the exhaustive truth. We've cornered the market on all the truths and subtruths there within. There's no real mysteries left to be explored except the things that the scriptures kind of leave hanging that we can't fully for sure answer. But even then, sometimes those things become absolute too. Like it's pre-tribulational rapture and it's premillennialism and the truth is settled even on a mystery like the end of the world, right? And, and I go, what I see as the fruit of that is pride. And what I see as the fruit of that so often is a lack of curiosity. And also in there, what I see is a lack of appreciation for the diversity that is the Christian faith, right? Like we, we settle in and we say, okay, truth is located only in my tribe. And everybody else has gotten the truth wrong. And we've settled it where they haven't settled it like they should have. And and all of this to me just reminds me how easy it is to almost get away from the rawness of the Bible and just settle in with, again, our clan, our group someplace, and our group's understanding of the truth. And therefore, we're not reapproaching the Bible or we're not looking at other Christian persons or traditions when in a sense of like wonderment or maybe humility or openness, we go, no, 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 but we're, we're done. We're, we're finished with that. We don't have to need to do that anymore. We just need to uh, kind of really anchor ourselves in the thing that we have settled. And that is the thing that for me, at least I go, that doesn't feel very liberating. That feels a little bit imprisoning. Now, I'm sure for some that may be listening where you're a little bit like, no, I take comfort in absolutes. I get it. Or you may say, well, Matt, now what you're saying is there's no such thing as absolute truth. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is an absolute sense of truth that none of us can absolutely agree on or figure out. And and the other part of this too is, I think the thing that God encourages us to do is to grow to grow in wisdom and to grow in knowledge. And, and, and when we start to say that there's these, that we humans can come up with the absolute airtight theological model within a very finite amount of time, it almost is saying, well, we don't really want you to keep growing and keep expanding and keep learning. No, we want you to get to a point where you've learned, 
you've grown, you've figured it out, and now you just you just camp on that which is known, and there's no longer really learning or growing. It's just stalling at the point where we say, this is the absolute answer. That's why I'm an advocate of saying no. I think we're always meant to be looking at the Bible with fresh eyes and fresh hearts, uh, because part of what's true, whether we always want to acknowledge this or not, because it starts to feel a little bit subjective, um, part of the way we tend to read the Bible is by way of our life experiences. Like as as you go through life and you have new challenges, new heartbreaks, new victories, new uh, you know exposures or whatever else, it does shape the way you're approaching the Bible. And I think part of this is because God has this higher order to it, right? We can get into the weeds of what's the exegetical meaning of a text that Moses uh, penned, you know, uh, and and we're supposed to understand the exact meaning of the time based on the culture, the language, all of that kind of stuff. We can do that. But there's another reality that just says, you know what, uh, as you grow in life, you tend to read these stories in new ways. And they mean something a little bit different than maybe they did the first time. Like I know in my world, um, I've taught the book of Ecclesiastes uh, every decade of my life. So my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, I'll teach it again in my 60s. And every time it's radically different. And what's amazing is, is I get older and life kind of punches me in the face a little bit and I get the rewards of the beautiful little things in life too. What I find is I am less certain what Ecclesiastes is fully teaching more than I'm more certain. And I think that's a part of the mystery. Like God loves to do everything inverted, right? The greatest is the least. The first is the last. You want to gain your life. You lose your life. Like all these opposites. And I think there's another part, like the more you're in the book, it's not the more you become certain of all the details and the interlocking theologies. You become more certain that God is big and you are small and you know, the that there's absolute truth, but I can't know the truth absolutely. And that humbles me as opposed to emboldens me. It makes me a little bit more like, man, I'm going to be dependent on God to guide me as opposed to I'm going to be the guide for other people to God because I've figured it all out. Like that, that just seems to be the the, the way that I at least look at this and go, no, man, that's, that's just not helpful. I think we're meant to have, I mean, even God way more celebrates humility over pride. And you look at the religious leadership that Jesus was constantly fighting with. They thought they were right on a lot of stuff. And Jesus was like, dude, you, you totally missed it. You've misread it. You don't understand it. Your hearts are not soft. You're hard. You know, you, you, you think you're wise, but you're foolish. Like all of that is kind of buried in what he's getting at with them. And I still think it comes back to the fact that the way we're to approach this Again, is, all right, God, what do you want me to learn today? And we do that every day. And in that, God, what are the places where I've assumed I've figured it out and I haven't figured it out? And what are the fruitful outcomes of the right approach to these things versus the wrong approach to these things? And, And what are ways that maybe I would have said I could never see it this way before, but maybe now you want me to see it this way for the first time because that's the next layer or iteration that you are building into my life. So like an example for me would be like, I constantly go back to wanting to understand exactly what the cross does. Like that's a big one for me, right? Like I'm always going back to what does the cross do? Because 
for me early on, I was taught about atonement, not from really exploring the Bible, but because I was instantly thrust into a particular theological background that said, all right, here's our systematic approach to understanding what the cross does, how the atonement works, what this all means, the wrath of God on Jesus to atone for the sins of people. And so God crushes Jesus in this only way God can be appeased is by destroying something or someone. Otherwise, God can never be satisfied unless someone suffers for sin, right? And that was the system I was I was just trained in, right? That's what it is. And I didn't question that for a long time. And then I started like just looking at the gospels going, why do the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not highlight any of that kind of thing. Like you would think if they were really wanted to to focus on, you know, Jesus comes so that God can express his hatred of sin on something and Jesus is the something. And so God enjoys thrusting wrath on Jesus. Like you would think that the gospel writers would want to get into those weeds to some degree, but they, they don't get into that at all. Like it's kind of strange, right? I'm not saying that there isn't maybe in Paul and other things like places we might look and go, is that what's going on? But but see, for the longest time, I'm like, that's just what it was. And then I remember just kind of going like, wow, I feel like I was trained in a system before I really tried to just explore for myself what God is maybe saying about the cross. And then from that, you know, it became kind of multifaceted. Um, I think even more than ever, I, I, I think the way I look at the cross, I, I go, it's the most beautiful way I've ever seen it. And it's incredibly far from the model I was originally trained in. Now, I'm not completely throwing out baby with bathwater or anything like that. But I go, man, I'm I'm, I'm far, far more captivated by the notion that Jesus is God, Jesus comes into the world, and he does the opposite thing time and again. And, and the most opposite thing he can do is as God, he takes the wrath of people, right? Of every kind of population, religious secular, political, um, you know, uh, just kind of communal, uh, his friends, his foes, everybody kind of is against Jesus in the cross. And then he's like, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Like, like the most powerful things about the cross, I think, are found in the Gospels. And, and in there, you see where our tendency is to say, you know what? Uh, justice is retribution, That's what we tend to do. Justice is retribution. And what you see Jesus doing in the cross is saying, no, I'm going to take all of their their hatred and I will absorb their hatred in love and I will not retaliate in judgment, but rather I will extend forgiveness, right? And so while being God, he doesn't do what is fully in the in the wheelhouse of God to do. Say, you all are being unjust and now I'm going to pour out wrath on you all this day. Like that would have made more sense, like more than God pouring out wrath on Jesus, it would have made sense for like, God is proving humanity is sinful and I will pour out wrath on all of them. And instead it's like, what we have is this, this connection between the father and the son saying, we're going to show something opposite than what is earned or deserved. And we're going to show that this is the epitome of love and restoration in the face of hate and retribution. Like to me, I go, that is a far more profound and beautiful. Frankly, I go, that can only be divine, right? To have that kind of disposition. And and, and so for me, then the cross becomes an even more enriching, life-challenging, deepening concept where I go, now I, I, I all the more am inspired by what I see in the cross because it models to me what I should do. And that's why Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
He's like, don't you realize that this is an example for you to follow, right? And Jesus just trusts the Father and everything, right? And, and, and so, again, in, instead of me being kind of stuck into the systematic theology of an atonement theory of the cross, I can get up over the top of it, just look like almost in a in a in a new open-eyed way at the gospels and be like, wow, what this is screaming at me is the beauty of selfless sacrifice, the opposite of how the world does things, right? Like, because if you think about it, like, like what we know is humanity is really good at creating victims. Uh, humanity is really good when you are the victim to want your victimizer to suffer. And then the law exists to be a controlled measure of violence to appease the victim and punish the, the victimizer, right? And so all of it is still kind of predicated on uh, some sense of violence, whether it be controlled, uncontrolled, or the wounds of it, and you want somebody else to have violence because you've had violence against you. All of that just kind of highlights like humans are really good at trying to figure out, justify, or or are trying to at least tame but still exercise violence. And then you have Jesus on the cross and he just upends all of that kind of thing. Like to me, I go, that is incredibly profound. Like that moves me, right? And I'll tell you part of the reason I was thinking about this today. This is going to sound so stupid. So I'm driving home. I'm on Cherry Valley Road, which is kind of this 35 mile an hour road that nobody goes 35 miles an hour on. We all probably go like 40, maybe as much as 45 because it's in the sticks, right? Uh, anyway, there's this car just riding me on Cherry Valley and I'm going like 45. And this is like, for me, the limit. Like, I'm not going to go faster than that. There's deer, there's bus stops, there's all this stuff. You know, I, I don't even feel good at 45, right? But I confess I'm sinning and I'm speeding because this guy's really on my tail. And then he decides to pass me, right? On Cherry Valley, which is just madness. There's no places to pass. And I remember going, man, as he passes me, I really hope a deer jumps out and hits his car. I really hope there's a cop around this corner and he gets his own. Like I wanted vengeance, right? Like that's what I wanted. I wanted this guy to get his just dessert. And and, and I go, because that would be just. And so I'm thinking it. And then as soon as I'm thinking it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is so contrary to the cross, <laughs> right? And, and, and part of that, what I was just really kind of mesmerized in my own person is that I value more of a pacifistic approach to life. Like, like kind of more deep down on my bones. I'm, I'm a little bit more a fan of leaning that way a little bit more. Um, and how actually deep inside me, that's not fully the case. Right. And so I wanted another person to suffer because I felt that they were being unjust against me and I wanted them to be punished for being unjust against me. And it just reminded me then that my, my issue isn't, isn't really justice. It's vengeance. Right. I want retribution to be poured out on them in some way. I want, you know, the I don't know, you reap what you sow to hammer them. And, and I thought how toxic it is for me that in my being deluded into thinking what I'm really wanting is just fairness or justness or somebody that's doing something wrong to be set right. When I really dug down deep and I thought about myself, I'm like, no, what I'm wanting is for them to suffer. I want them. I want them to be pained. And that is a really sinister thing in me, right? And, and, and so, you know, as that was happening, I thought about that. And then I thought about the cross. And then I thought about how what's so beautiful about, I think, the way I see the cross predominantly now is not, here's another example of how somebody needs retribution. God needs retribution. So he pours out wrath on Jesus. And that's the only way God can be satisfied. Like, like, like as I think about that model, I understand it's a theological concept. I understand that there's verses to support it and everything else. But as I kind of think about it more, I go, like, how much is that almost putting God in a space 
of like, uh, almost like he is now at the mercy of he needs his wrath satisfied by by killing, crushing, or punishing something. Otherwise, he's he's never going to be fully complete unless he does that. And I thought, it's interesting because I get the idea that God needs to be just and God needs to be holy and God needs to be love and God needs to be peace and all the things that God needs to be because that's his character. It's the essence of his person. It's his nature. He can't not be certain things. But I thought, man, that really does put God at the mercy of himself in a way that I go, it's kind of like, can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? And the answer is no, because now the rock is mightier than God, I go, can can God get so uh, worked up over justice that now he needs to express his wrath to be balanced again in himself? And I go, that's kind of like the rock, you know, to me. Like, I, I go, and it doesn't even seem to be the most beautiful part of the cross. The most beautiful part of the cross to me seems to be that the father and son are on the same page in mission. And that the father and the son at the cross highlight the oppositeness of the world. And while they could express wrath on those who are earning it that day, they express love and forgiveness in the place of wrath. Like that seems to me to be a far more beautiful portrait of the cross. Now, it's not the only portrait of the cross, right? I I did a thing in the Gospel of Luke a few months back and I talked about all the different atonement theories and there's a bunch of them. And I think they all bring different value to the table. I really do. And maybe that's a part of what I'm getting at too. Like the more we explore, the more we think, the more we we try to ponder the 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 problems of the scripture, right? We're trying to solve the problems. And again, I want to emphasize it's not the problem, but there are problems when we read it that we should be trying to process and work through and solve and keep doing that throughout our lives. We never stop or stall. We never say, okay, I've settled it. It's done. But we're always coming and saying, God, give me fresh eyes to understand you more deeply because the reality is um, there's probably far more layers to this than any of us will ever understand in this life, right? Because part of what we're dealing with is an infinite God, right? And it's an infinite God expressed in a finite book for sure. But because the book is finite, but it's revealing an infinite God, we don't want to just start to assume that we can, you know, almost have finite answers for everything about God that is in the book. We go, no, no, no. It's it's a portal to something. And it's a portal that constantly demands we reinvestigate, we rethink, we renegotiate our understandings, we uh, kind of redeploy ourselves to look with fresh eyes in different ways and let God guide us in that process. That sounds a little mystical, I know. It sounds overly spiritual, I know. But I actually think that's a healthy approach too, because in the Western world, we turn everything into like like a formula, right? And, and we go, that's kind of the way we're going to approach it. And there's going to be a one size fits all because that's the way modernity works. That's the way the enlightenment encouraged us. There is one answer to everything. And I go, yeah, but God has given us a very unique set of documents here. And then in that, he's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us in those things. And he's put Jesus in us to explore all of these things. And I know for me, as life goes on, there's many things that I've held dear that now I hold loose. There are many people I used to say, man, we don't even have the same Christianity. And now I'm like, I see more of Jesus in them than sometimes I do in the people I most esteemed within my theological tradition. Right? And maybe that's the other thing about this that I think is so valuable. I find more and more that I go, hey, my walled garden of conservative, evangelical, Protestant Christianity, man, it's given me a lot. It's still my home. That's where I dwell. It's where I take my boots off at night, right? It's there. 
But I realize that there is an ecosystem of Christianity also. And and in the ecosystem of Christianity, there's going to be, you know, again, there's going to be like uh, forests and there's going to be swamps and there's going to be grasslands and there's going to be tundras and there's going to be all these different things that are out there. And yet, as I look at those things, I go, wow, you're showing or revealing an element or an essence of Jesus that is that is inspiring, that, that looks like the fruit of the Spirit, that looks like the stuff of the kingdom, that looks like Jesus-sounding, feeling, inspiring stuff. And we can learn from those things too. Doesn't mean that we have to go make our home in all of those different places. Because like for me, I make my home in conservative, evangelical, Protestant Christianity. That's my home. But it's my home in such a way where I realize I don't have all the answers there. And for the places that I want to to really double down in there, I still want to maintain humility and openness, right? And, And I think for me, at least, as I continue to grow and to learn, I think that is where the best lessons are taught, you know? For the person that says, I really have nothing left to learn. I'm just now, I'm just exporting to others what I've learned, but I have nothing new to maybe glean, nothing new to be challenged by, nothing new to change. I don't know. It just seems like maybe our walled garden is becoming a prison more than a walled garden. And um, prisons never serve anybody well, right? And yet, I think when we're in these particular mindsets and when we're having this sense of, hey, you know, I, I, I never want to stop authentically growing, right? Both in depth and in breadth. But the more we're doing that, I think the more it's going to make us effective everyday missionaries. And I think it does that because then we are more in tune with the heart of Jesus. We're more in tune with what Jesus's mission is for the world. We're more in tune with the fact that, you know what, even as we come across people that may disagree with us, disregard us, dislike us, we have a heart that says, you know what though, but I want to learn from them. What is it that they don't like about us? What is it they don't like about me? Is it my faith? Is it their assumptions about us? Is it stereotypes that they heard? Is it actual things that really, nope, they're right. They don't like me for this particular thing. And that is certainly a true Christian thing. Like, like, but it, makes us, or puts us in the mindset of always being curious, right? Always being in that headspace of problems to solve, not simply messages to proclaim. And don't get me wrong, I believe the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. So I'm not trying to say this, uh, you know, problem to be solved is across the board on every single topic. That's not what I'm saying either. Uh, But what I am saying is, I think the more we have that spirit of curiosity, of I want to understand, asking questions more than making statements, um, taking in new information more than taking offense at things, like the more we're doing that, I think it's the more of what God calls us to because what he ultimately calls us to is wisdom, right? Authentic wisdom. And then in this wisdom, he calls us to then execute our wisdom in ways where the world might look at that and say, you know what, that's weird, right? That's strange, that's odd. And I think many of the ways that that happens is even when we are gracious and kind and compassion and kind of open-minded, like legitimately open-minded. And and when we are doing things upside down and backwards, you know, when Paul talks about how the, the, you know, the Gentiles seek this and the Jews seek that as far as one wants wisdom and one wants miracles. And he's like, but I just focus on Christ proclaimed, right? I just focus on the cross of Christ. I go, why did Paul focus on the cross of Christ? Because at the cross of Christ, you see wrath-restrained, love extended, forgiveness given, as opposed to retribution thrust out on everybody who is earning it. That is so utterly 
otherworldly um, that I go, that is where I think the strength of the everyday missionary is, right? When, when we can really lock into that space. And I think the more we do that, I think the more we'll get good at that. And I think the more we're doing that, the more we will um, be attractive to deconstructed people, disbelieving people, right? Flat out just disagreeing people. I think we'll be attractive because we're not reactionary. We're, we're again, embodying, kind of incarnating the, the, I don't know, the ethos of the cross, which is not lashing out, not hateful against, not eager to pour out wrath on people, but rather, God forgive them. They just, they don't know what they're doing. There's all kinds of things that have contaminated them. There's all kinds of things that have hurt them. There's all kinds of things that even maybe we've done to add to the damage. And so God, I just want to be calm in you. I just want to be helpful in you. I want to be genuine and gracious in you. I want to be curious in you. I want to be kind in you. And see, I I think that is how the cross plays itself out in our lives, right? It reminds us of the stature of Jesus. It reminds us of the heart of God uh, in the whole equation, right? It's not about retribution, just desert, getting my own, seeing suffering for suffering, but rather choosing to suffer for the sake of others that they may know life and love and grace and kingdom and truth. And I believe the more we do that and we live like that, the more we will be effective everyday missionaries.